make me wanna shout. Kick your heels up and shout. Throw your hands up and shout. Throw your head back and shout. Come on now, the bills are making it happen now. Stand up now, cool. come on and shout. Cool. going. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. I'm here virtually with, with Mike Brand. I'm I'm actually in the comfort of my own house and. And Mike's sitting in a bar somewhere. I just listened. while you were ordering that beer, I almost felt like I should have been recording that. That probably would have good good natural sound. <laughs> that would have been a great introduction to this. So as, <clears throat> this morning, as as I was thinking about doing this with you, I was trying to remember back. You you and I have crossed paths a couple times and met a few times. Um, I think you and I probably bumped into each other the first time, maybe when you were at Texas State. And I don't think it was anything serious. I think we literally just bumped into each other. And then I don't know if you remember it or not, but when the MLL uh, All-Star Game was in Houston, we were actually in a suite together. My son was Oh, yeah. Uh, so we were with you. And who was that? Uh, the Wallaces were there. Yeah, the and, Wallaces uh, were there. Yeah, that was a good time. So, uh, my, you know, my son had a blast hanging out with you, right? And, and now that you're over in San Antonio and, and, and coaching at the high school level, right, I bump into you a little bit there and, and bump into you in the off season, right? When you're coaching tacos and leading up the tacos, right? So, yep. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, and actually we, we, uh, where were we? we had dinner last, when was that? Probably in Plano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, we stopped and had dinner. Had, had, you had your kiddo with the kiddo with you. That was fun. Yeah. It was a good time. Yep. So cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, as we were talking before we started recording, what's, what's great about you is, you know, you've, you played when you were, you were younger, right? You played when you were in college, if I remember correctly. Um, in, here in Texas, you've, you've, you've coached the high school level. You've coached at the youth level. You've coached at Texas State, right? And, and, and now you've spun up the tacos, right? And you're, you're responsible for that organization. So I, I think there's a ton to talk about. And I'm, I'm super pumped uh, to talk yeah. to you. Yeah. I'm, I'm privileged to be a non-Houstonian on the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, that's a small group, right? It might just be you and Rich Moses right now. Yeah. That's not terrible company, right? Not at all. So, yeah, maybe go back. Um, tell me how you ended up playing lacrosse, right? How, how did you come to the game? Was it your folks? Was it your brother? Was it the neighborhood boys? How, how did you get started? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in a little town in between Niagara Falls and Buffalo, New York, western New York. And uh, our high school team, our high school, had a team, I believe they started in about 1979, so ahead of most teams in the country. Uh, my brother was a big hockey player, and I think uh, a lot of his friends just picked up lacrosse in the uh, off season to uh, keep in shape and have fun and be competitive. Uh, unlike Texas, it was a school-sponsored sport, so it really didn't cost my parents much. He would just go to practice after school and they had to pay for a stick and maybe a pair of gloves and the rest was provided for him and rides the games and practice, like I said, right after school. So, you know, my brother's nine years older than I am, so it was easy to kind of follow in his footsteps. And uh, that's pretty much, you know, when he would leave with his friends, I'd go steal a stick and mess around with it and throw the ball off the roof and off the chimney and, you know, just kind of waste time. Taylor, uh, Taylor Brooks, when I talked to him, he had, he had a similar story. He, has, he had an older brother who played, right? And he told a story where he would go, he was, he was allowed to go 
play games and work out, or I should say play games and practice with his brother and his team, but he, he did it only under one circumstance, and that was he was the permanent picker. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he, he, everything worked out great as, as, as long as he was just setting picks, right? Did you, you similar experience for you, or was your brother old enough that that disparity prevented you from playing with him? Yeah, I think he was just a little bit older. You know, when I was coming of age, he was hopping in somebody's car and going off and being teenagers. Um, so, you know, great relationship with my brother, obviously. we He ended up taking me to some men's box games, some box leagues in Niagara Falls uh, when I was probably in 10th grade and he was an adult. So we got to play in that situation. But in my former years, no, he was busy being a teenager while I was messing around the neighborhood with the kids my age. So when were you first introduced to, you know, formal structured leagues or games for lacrosse? Yeah, probably pretty late compared to a lot of uh, players nowadays. Uh, ninth grade first, oh, wow. you know, the spring of ninth grade, obviously much younger than that. I had had a stick in my hand and knew how to catch and throw and knew how to mess around with a stick, but didn't really put a helmet and gloves and shoulder pads. And, uh, you know, I remember the first practice I ever watched was in a gymnasium in our school. And I just remember being shocked at how you could run behind the net. You know, that's showed you how, you know, uh, kind of lost I was, but yeah. So a little bit late ninth grade, there really wasn't any youth lacrosse where I grew up. Uh, there obviously is now, but, uh, you know, it being a school-sponsored sport, there wasn't any sort of clubs or leagues or uh, little league or you know travel teams <clears throat> until a few years later. Was it? Did you? Were, were there pickup games in the neighborhood? Did Did you and the boys get together and, and, and play at all, or was it literally you got in high school as a freshman and, and that's when it started? No, yeah, we definitely played, but it was just a stick. It was kind of. Uh, you know, a little bit of basketball rules, got to take it out, got to make a couple passes before you can shoot. Um, you know, a lot of my friends who had older brothers that played, we would always get together and throw around. The nets were kind of always out at our school, so we'd ride our bikes up there and mess around. Um, but, yes, yeah, so there was a little impromptu pickup games, but the structured stuff didn't start until essentially March 1st of my freshman year of high school. So you had – this was something I talked about with John Proudy a lot where, you know, in the neighborhood he grew up in, there, there was actually enough density that, you know, pickup games were a thing, that there were enough boys to, to spin up games and play games regularly, just kind of unstructured, right? I mean, that's, yeah. That's something that, that's missing here in, in Texas for sure is that density in the neighborhood where you can just go grab eight or ten boys and go play, right? Yeah, I talk about that a lot with people in San Antonio and even in my own hometown. There was a huge advantage to just meeting up every day after school in the, um, you know, the empty lot in between two of my friends' houses and playing a different sport every day, unsupervised, um, you know, and if things got out of hand, you had, to, you had to manage yourself. You had to either talk your way out of getting punched or you had to stick up for yourself. And I think, uh, you know, the creativity that you're talking about in a pickup game is is lost when everything is so structured. But I also feel like a lot of conflict resolution skills for uh, young men is kind of lost because they're 
there's always a parent around or a coach around in every sporting event that they play, whether it's practice games or leagues or uh, there's something to be said about just meeting up at a field unsupervised and playing a sport. Now, whether that's apathy and video games make that not happen or parents just not wanting their kids roaming the neighborhoods anymore, um, I'm not sure. Well, and some of it, and, I, and I've talked about this with a couple of folks, I'm curious about your opinion. My impression nowadays is, you know, something as valuable as just going out and, and, and playing pickup games, right? We see the value in that, but it's almost like until you assign a dollar sign to something, that parents don't see a value in it, right? Right, and right. That, that I, I just feel like, you know, until someone hangs a couple hundred bucks off of a, you know, a, a, a standing, you know, open run or, you know, field space or something. The parents are like, well, like it can't, can't be that, that, you know, that fantastic. My, my kid's not going to be able to go play at Duke, you know, without dropping a few hundred bucks on every session. Right. Sure. And I, I, I think with the parents that I've seen, uh, and the players that I coach now, I think the wave might be cresting a little bit in the fact that I coach a lot of kids who, frankly, are not that interested in playing college lacrosse. Uh, they're passionate about lacrosse. They, they're, they're very coachable and they play hard, but they're not as ambitious to go Division One as maybe about five or ten years ago. I could be wrong, but maybe that's just the environment that I'm in. Um, I see a lot of kids who want to go to good schools and fun schools and have great college experiences and, um, you know, going to a school that maybe is is not great academically, but has a lacrosse program they want to play for, uh, isn't really, like I said, as big as it was maybe five, ten years ago, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting perspective. Obviously, you know, going back to what we talked about in the beginning, I coach in San Antonio, Texas, I think, where all four cities in in Texas that have lacrosse are all unique and have their own different, uh, you know, pros and cons, uh, and we're obviously the smallest in regards to lacrosse so i think that might have a lot to play into that uh that feeling that i'm getting yeah you man you hit the nail on the head that's something we'll come back to for sure is i I don't think people who are not from texas appreciate how different the four major metropolitan areas are in texas that have lacrosse right and and that's an issue when it comes to to governance for sure and we're going to come back to that absolutely so going into your freshman year of high school is the first time you played organized lacrosse was I, mean, I, I guess when i think of of new york right i'm thinking immediately man lacrosse has got to be a big deal right so was 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 lacrosse a big deal at your high school i mean was, when did you, did you make the team and that was that was that was man that was the shit that was that was big time right not really to be honest with you i think that lacrosse was fairly new to buffalo compared to rochester syracuse long island um and it still kind of feels that way. Even looking at it from afar, I have a lot of friends who still coach there. And it seems like they've never really closed the gap with those other upstate cities. And um, it's a big hockey town. Um, Football is popular in Buffalo as well at the high school level. Um, and the cross has always seemed to be just kind of a thing to do. Uh, there, there have been some great players that came out of Buffalo, obviously. But it wasn't as deep as maybe the other upstate cities. So, no, it was kind of just, uh, you know, that we never really had cuts. I don't think our high school has ever had cuts at our high school team. 
Uh, I think if you play, you make the team. Um, so no, it really hasn't been huge. And yeah, that's it's funny. I, uh, I, people do tell me a lot. Oh, you're from upstate New York. Lacrosse must have been huge. You must have been playing since you were four years old. And it really wasn't like that in Western New York. Uh, I'm not sure what it was. Obviously, we're sandwiched in between, you know, Syracuse and Ontario. You would think that we would take advantage of both sides of us, but we really didn't. And I'm not sure if, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just it's a fact that. It never really was a uh, the go-to sport, I suppose, in the schools. So was, I mean, despite that, was it was your was your high school career was it still a competitive career? You had good coaching, the teams were, were, were well coached, you played well. I mean, you enjoyed your you enjoyed your, your career, obviously, right? But was it was it competitive? Yeah. So when I was there, my high school team had a great tradition. We won. My sophomore year, my first year playing varsity lacrosse, we won the fifth straight Class B championship in Section 6, which is Western New York. Uh, we've had a good five or ten guys play Division One lacrosse in the history of the program. A lot of guys play D3 and club. and So it was a huge uh, tradition, um, but it, wasn't, it never really kind of got the attention I feel like it deserved by our town. You know, even I feel like the administration at the school was just like, oh, those are the kids who couldn't make the baseball team or they're playing lacrosse. And that was never really the the truth. I think the administration just didn't know enough about lacrosse to really give it its proper uh, attention. Uh, it just isn't obviously, as we all know, it's not one of those big name traditional sports. So it didn't really get the kind of crowds or oh, man, my son, I want him to play lacrosse someday and be like you guys. That really didn't happen. Uh, it seemed to be a little more organic where kids found the game more than they were pushed into it, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's really interesting because, that, I mean, that run, like you said, that runs completely contrary to, to the conventional wisdom here about, you know, New York lacrosse, right? That's a really right. interesting story. Yeah, and there's a handful of towns that, are, that border our town that to this day don't have lacrosse. So, uh, you know, my, I have two nephews who are freshmen in college now, and obviously I'd always wanted them to play lacrosse, but they go to a, uh, you know, high school about two hours south of Buffalo, closer to the PA border than uh, the Canadian border, but they, their high school never had lacrosse. And I always joke with them that, you know, 20 miles up the road was, you know, Silver Creek, which was, a, you know, a Seneca Nation uh, reservation that, you know, there's some big, some big name players that have come out of that school, and they don't even really know that lacrosse existed. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting from an outsider's perspective to think that, you know, it's not all lacrosse in every single town. You know, just like the simple fact you travel overseas and people think you're from Buffalo, New York, and you must be able to ride your bike into Times Square. So, <laughs> so, so how did you, how did you end up? Well. When you when you wrapped up your high school career, right? I, 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 you went on to play in college, right? So so how how did you how did you make the jump from high school to college? Where did you play? What was your college experience like? Sure. Well, after high school, I uh, attended Herkimer Community College, uh, in between Syracuse and Albany on Interstate 90, which is a little bit outside of Utica, New York. Uh, they've had a um, massive lacrosse tradition there. Uh, it kind of went down the tubes after Onondaga got a team. They kind of stole their thunder and they've gone on a run. Um, 
freshman year, just was not ready to live away from home. Had a terrible grade point average and didn't make the team. And uh, still thankful for that uh, experience to this day. I think it's changed my perspective as a lacrosse coach. Um, so, uh, yeah, after two years at Herkimer, transferred back to Buffalo State College in Buffalo. Uh, not to be confused with the University of Buffalo. It's a smaller Division three school on the other side of town. They had an NCLL team, which is the uh, other club league that's not the MCLA, uh, and played a few years of club there. It was as bad news bears as you could probably imagine. Animal House plus bad news bears. We <laughs> had a had a really good time. I'm still close with a lot of the guys I played with on that team, but it was it was um, you know a lot of the MCLA teams nowadays have a reputation. Or they have a you know a wrong reputation that it's a club, so you guys must be, you know, drinking beers before the game and you know whatever. You not really care about who plays or you know how many credits you're taking. But uh, it it was the it was the type of team that set the reputation. Um, I remember the one year I think it was the year after I left. They played three games the whole season, and two of them were on the same day. So if that paints a picture <laughs> of the type of seasons they had. And, the one, funny, the one funny story I always tell is the one year we told the school that we made the Final Four. So they gave us vans and hotel rooms and money for meals, and we just went to the real Final Four and just kind of hung out and just watched the games. And then I remember our team president, when he handed in all the receipts, they kind of surprised him and asked him, well, how did you guys do? And he kind of like, well, uh, got wide-eyed and said, oh, yeah, we lost in the first round. And they were like, we're, so, we're just so proud of you guys representing us. And it was just kind of, you know, that's the kind of you know, free, free internet club lacrosse, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what, what was interesting about that story, I, I apologize, the, you, you said there was a, a junior college that you went to? Sure. What was the name of the college again? Her Herkimer. Herkimer. You know, what was interesting about that that story you told about your experience at Herkimer was reminded me a lot of Rich Moses and his experience originally when he went off to school, right? Which was, there was some adversity, right? He, he didn't make the team his freshman year, right? Right. After being recruited to go play the, at, at Hobart. You know, here you are off at school, you know, getting hit in the face with bad grades, right? And, 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 and leaving school. And, and, and what's interesting about that is how you're able to use that now as a tool to relate to your boys, right? Exactly. I, I don't. I think the main reason I coach now is to make sure that kids don't make the same mistakes that I did. Uh, I think that a, a lot of 16, 17-year-olds are set up to fail by the fact that people do a lot of things for them. And as soon as you uh, get a little taste of freedom and realize that you're responsible for everything you do, uh, you're not prepared for that. And I certainly wasn't. And I my claim to fame is that my GPA went up every single semester of my college career all the way through my master's degree, but I set the bar very low in that very first semester, so it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't hard to get any better than that first one. That's funny. Awesome. So after you got done with your undergraduate degree, where did your, where did your lacrosse career go at, at that point? Were you... Were you coaching? Were you playing men's league? Did you put it on the shelf to pursue, you know, more schooling and a career? Where, where, what happened? Yeah, I, I definitely put it on the shelf a little bit. I uh, got an internship at Madison Square Garden in New York City. I was a broadcasting undergrad, so I got a, uh, 
internship at MSG Network. They do the Knicks, Rangers. They do the Yankees and the Mets at that point uh, and the New York Islanders. Uh, so I was a production assistant for their TV station in New York City. Lived with a friend of mine from Buffalo who was going to college at Adelphi University in Long Island and took the train in every day and kind of put the cross on the back burner. And he was working a, um, a bit of a, you know, once a week clinic in Garden City, Long Island with Gordon Purdy, who's now the head coach at Adelphi. And asked, he said, hey, well, they were asking if they want any more guys. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, of course. Make a little extra cash and I'm messing around. And I think that was kind of a little bit of a spark that told me, well, you know, I want to stay in this. I want to keep going. So uh, it was probably about three or four months. I did it every Sunday uh, throughout my internship. And then, you know, the funny thing was the internship at this, you know, concurrently told me, yeah, this is not what I want to do for a living, you know. I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to work in the industry. Sometimes it, sometimes it motivates you, and sometimes it tells you, "Yeah, this is not what I want to do." So um, I'm thankful for that experience. So, yeah, that was my immediate post-college experience. So the, 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 the camp. It sounded like a, maybe the weekly camp there at Adelphi. Was that? I mean, was that a, a paid thing, or was that just something? Yeah. That- it was paid. It was pretty by about twenty bucks a week, thirty bucks a week, but that was a lot of money for me. And being a you know Western New York kid, seeing these eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve year olds from Long Island who were so much better than any of the kids in Western New York, and they had just had such a higher baseline of lacrosse, it was just kind of eye opening. And obviously, the their reputation was right. You know, it was uh, it was warranted. Uh, you know, kids were had skills that. No kid from my town ever did, and they were 10 years old. And um, that was pretty eye-opening and, and motivating as well. So did, did – uh, so, you, you know, you had a role as a coach at this camp. You know, it, it sounds like those kids were, were pretty good players. Did you ultimately learn more from them than they did from you, you think? Yeah, and I think the, the, the other Long Island college guys that I coached with learned a lot from them as well. And, I also kind of took away from it was just a an attitude about lacrosse and how to have fun with it and how to how to be competitive and how you know I'll I'll, I'll give one thing to Long Island people they're very competitive and that's a uh, that shows you why they have such skilled and successful lacrosse players over the last you know billions of years it seems but that's the big thing I got away with it I think that uh, the fact that there's so many people densely populated in that one area and so many different lacrosse teams and programs that they want to be very competitive with each other, whereas where I grew up, it was a little bit more scarce, so you could you could get away with more, if that makes sense. You didn't have to be, uh, you know, obviously steel sharpens steel, right? So with more lacrosse players around, you're just going to simply get better. Yeah, but what was interesting about your, your experience with those, those boys at that camp, right? You mentioned not only were they competitive, but it sounded like you mentioned they also knew how to, en- how to enjoy the game and how to have fun, right? Yeah, exactly. And those you know, are two. Was, those are two yeah. things. You know, especially parents nowadays, right? Those are two things that are completely inconceivable, right? How, how could you possibly, you know, go out there and have fun and enjoy yourself? Oh, and be competitive, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's no. You know, we're had to do a tournament this weekend. I've been playing out, and uh, we had a little talk at practice last night about how, you know, win, lose, or draw, man. It's just so much fun to hang out at the tent and 
see the other team's jerseys and, uh, you know, go watch a couple of teams that are better than us play when you're not playing and see a friend from camp that you saw a few months ago or, you know, a buddy of yours that maybe moved away that plays for a different team. It's just that's the stuff that I really cherish more than the actual we have to win this tournament at all costs kind of stuff. Right, right, for sure. So after that, after that camp experience, right, what, what was next for you as it relates to lacrosse? Did you, did that, did that create a, a coaching itch that you had to scratch or did that create a playing itch that you had to scratch? Well, I've never really stopped playing even to this day. And, um, you know, getting back to Buffalo, we always found indoor and outdoor leagues and games to play in. But when I got back uh, after my internship, which was probably January or February, I emailed the new head coach, uh, the new JV head coach at my high school, who actually grew up in my neighborhood when I was a little, little kid, and uh, asked him if he needed any assistant coaches for his JV team in our high school. You know, and it's funny, you write the email and you're nervous, and you reread it, and you make sure that it's written properly, and you're, you're hoping that he'll give you a shot, and you, you know, you're nervous, and then years later, you know, he tells you, yeah, I needed you more than you needed me, so you could have... You could have written a one-line email that said, hey, when does, when does practice start? I'm coaching. And he would have said yes. So got on as the JV coach in my high school, as JV assistant, uh, which I think, you know, unpaid JV assistant, which, you know, now I see kids that want to skip steps, right? They want right. to be varsity head coaches and make a bunch of money and run a club team. And, uh, and, and I always tell them, you know, it's – great to start at the bottom to understand what it's like because you have great perspective and to be a unpaid JV assistant coach I was extremely excited going to practice every day and being part of a team again and you know putting on a putting on the colors of the high school team and coaching some kids up and uh, ended up doing that for a few years and then our, our head coach who was my high school head coach retired and the JV coach moved up and I essentially moved up with him so I did, I believe, three or four years at my high school, uh, and that was a lot of fun. And actually, a couple of my players are from those years are now coaches. One of them is an assistant at Sacred Heart, a Division One team. So it's been fun to follow his career and talk about the old days in the gym when there's a foot of snow outside. And he was a little ninth grade kid. So, so how were you? How old were you when you took that JV assistant position? Probably about twenty-two or twenty-three. Oh, I would wow. assume. So the, yeah. So that, that gap between you and the boys, and that's something I've talked about with folks as well, right? That it's that those younger coaches where there's not that that gap between you and those boys. That that can be a challenge, right? Did you there, were there? Did you have especially when you go back to your high school, right? I mean, there was probably boys there that you know were younger brothers of, of friends of yours, right? Oh, oh, definitely. So yeah. How did and, that dynamic uh, work? I think it worked great in the fact that I was the assistant coach. Um, I didn't have to punish them. I didn't have to do any speeches before or after practice. I wasn't a teacher at their school like the head coach was. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's pros and cons of being an assistant and a head coach. Uh, I'm a completely different person as a head coach than I am as an assistant. So it was nice to kind of, you know, put, put my arm around him and say, hey, Coach Steck's yelling at you because of this. And doesn't mean he hates you. You know, you talk them, talk the kids off the ledge. You know, you'd be the good cop. So it was a fun time. Yeah, awesome. So how? So you 
sounded like you stayed at your high school for another three or four years, right? What, after you wrapped up your career coaching at your high school, where, where did you land next? So I, I found a great opportunity. Uh, a couple of guys from our town actually did the same thing. I uh, applied to be a, what's called an LDO, a local development officer for a, uh, for a club in England. So I ended up going out to Bath, England, which is in the southwest corner of England. And I uh, played on their men's team on sun, on Saturdays. And then Monday through Friday, I would uh, go to a primary school in the morning, which was their equivalent of an elementary school with the light plastic sticks. Go into their PE courses, have lunch, go to a secondary school, which is you know their equivalent to a high school, and uh, teach lacrosse all day long. I did that for about, uh, let's say, nine months, end of August till... Beginning of June, uh, math is probably off there, but uh, yeah, had a great time out in England playing lacrosse, coaching lacrosse. Uh, still have a lot of friends. My wife and I just went out there on vacation with our son a few weeks ago, and saw a lot of those uh, people I hadn't seen in a few years. Played in a played in a game there as well, uh, so that was a, obviously a life changing experience and very unique and a lot of fun. So, what what year was this that you were in England? I was there from September of 05 to May of 06, May, June of 06. So was there a legitimate lacrosse scene there? Yeah, there still is. There's still lacrosse all over the country. And uh, they used to have a lot bigger program, but there were some visa restrictions. So they're unable to get American coaches over there uh, in the same uh, frequency as they did back then. So... There's a lot of clubs in England, and um, the funny thing is, is the level of lacrosse obviously isn't really uh, as good as is in the states. But their organization of their leagues uh, is unbelievable. Uh, we had you know teams throughout the south of England, where you would play a home and home throughout the season every Saturday. The whole the the, the men's season is essentially the school year. And, uh, you know, each team visits each team. And when they visit you, you feed them after the game. And then they return the favor at the next game. And they have, you know, very uh, organized standings and stats and, uh, you know, match reviews. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I think that obviously comes from their other sports, you know, soccer and rugby and cricket and uh, the way that they kind of organize those leagues. Um, so it was a lot of fun. We certainly had a lot of weekends where the, the grass was waterlogged and the field was, or the game was called off. Um, but other than that, it was, like I said, a life-changing experience. And I still have some, you know, lifelong friends from that experience as well. So you were, you were traveling around, you know, going into these schools and teaching a lacrosse curriculum at these schools. Were there, were there any youth leagues at this, at that point, or were you working on organizing those at all? Yeah, that was kind of the reason we were there. And some people still to this day argue that the LDO program really didn't put a dent into lacrosse. Um, you know, the soccer, rugby, cricket are, you know, very popular sports over there. And it's hard to get the best athletes to play lacrosse. We obviously have that problem here in the States, but not as big, right? You don't, you know, we always joke about if you could see the best football guys playing lacrosse they'd be they'd dominate they'd be awesome so it was a tough sell to get you know kids who are super obsessed with those other sports to uh cross over to lacrosse but that was my job and 
we had a junior team, that's for sure. Um, and uh, not a lot of clubs had junior programs. Uh, but like I said, that's what the LDOs were there for. So when you say a junior program, is that like a U19 program? No, that's probably like a middle school aged oh, okay. kids. All right. Yeah. Good. Now, university lacrosse is huge in England. Uh, I think a lot of kids who have aspirations to be pro soccer, rugby, cricket guys end up going to university and those dreams are kind of vanished and they latch on to lacrosse just like American kids who want to be college football players. You know, when they know that dream's over, they end up playing a little rugby in college and they pick it up on the first day of college. And that's how it goes in England. So I actually coached the university side, Bath University. Um, we might have had 40 or 50 kids in the program and maybe one played before. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, it was uh, it's huge at the university level. I believe there's about 60 universities in England that play lacrosse. Uh, and it's growing like crazy. Did um, I, I know I asked Chris Arnold this, but I can't remember. You know, I think he was in Europe later than this, right? So y'all probably never bumped into each other in Europe, did you? I don't believe so. I know Chris now, obviously, but yeah, I don't think we ever crossed paths in Europe. Yeah, I, th I think he was in in uh, Ireland and then in Austria, and I think he was later because I, I had asked him that question because. I think I'd heard somewhere that you had spent some time in England in that role, and I was trying to figure out if y'all overlapped at all. So after that nine months or a year in England, did you end up coming right back home, or did you did you did you go somewhere else in Europe and spread the good word? No, so I ended up back in my town. I coached one more year with the high school program, and then I ended up getting a graduate assistant position at a small Division three school outside of Wilkes-Barre, Scranton, Pennsylvania, called Misericordia. Uh, got a free master's degree while being a Division three assistant coach, um, and uh, coached there for two years while I got my master's. So, <clears throat> kind of cut my teeth at the college game. I uh, coached in D three. Uh, we had some lean years. We had some s small teams. Uh, thankfully, they have a pretty strong program now. Um, I believe they won their conference a couple years ago and made the NCAA tournament. And they have about 30 or 40 kids on the roster now. So it's a small liberal arts college, Catholic school up in the mountains uh, outside of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, Northeast PA. Um, and uh, like I said, coached, was the assistant coach there, Division III. Uh, we were in the, the, the PAC conference then, the Pennsylvania Athletic Conference. Um, we would, Cabrini was the team that won the conference every year, the team who won the national championship last year. Um, so had two years as a graduate student and uh, coached lacrosse, and that was a lot of fun as well. So how did you make the jump from, <coughs> I mean, you just spent some time in England, you came back home and coached at the high school level for a year. How did you make the jump to, to being a college coach? Yeah, well, when I came back from England, I was just kind of figuring out what I was going to do, and those were the days of checking the lax power job postings every day to see what was out there, and uh, found this job, and the the head coach actually was a Herkimer grad as well, the community college that I attended. So that kind of made the connection. We didn't play together. We didn't know each other. Uh, but obviously, we had a common uh, experience, so that connected us and brought us together. So I uh, applied for that job, kind of cold emailed them and put in my application, drove down for an interview, and, and got the job. What was, uh, what was your role? Well, my, my role was 
I was the first ever assistant coach there. So for four or five years previous, the head coach was the only guy on staff, which for a college team, especially at NCAA, that seems extremely rare now. Um, But yeah, so I was the assistant coach and I had to do a lot of recruiting, which I wasn't very good at. Um, I had to, you know, obviously get practice going, make sure everything was uh, taken care of at the field before we started. Uh, and then didn't honestly really have a huge role or a side of the ball, just kind of hung out and listened and, uh, you know, tried to, uh, you know, help the head coach as much as I can. I think he was used to flying solo, so he wasn't really used to delegating a lot of stuff. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I think my role was just to assist him any way I could and make a million recruiting phone calls and be awkward on the telephone with some parents. <laughs> was it, so. was, was, you, you, you're kind of, you know, it sounds like you're playing down your, your role, you know, strictly coaching on the field, right? But, I mean, was, was there value in that position for you, even despite that? I mean, being the, being the first assistant coach, I'm assuming you, you know, you, you paved the way on a lot of stuff. I mean, was there value there? Did you learn a lot? Oh, I learned a, a ton. I learned how to practice plan. I learned how to, <clears throat> how to discipline kids. I learned how to, uh, you know, like I said, recruit. I learned how to, you know, go out in the summer and work with cross camps and network with other coaches. Um, learned how to deal with the administration of the team, build re- or the school, build relationships with the admissions office and the dean of students and other coaches, uh, you know, learn how to scout. Go watch a go watch a D three game and take notes and. You know uh, how to be organized in uh, that whole process. So yeah, it was it was baptism by fire for sure. Going from knowing essentially nothing to having to do a ton of things all in a two year span was extremely enriching. And I think I brought a lot of that to my later days working in the MCOA. Yeah, and I was about to, I was going to ask even now, bringing that even farther forward. You know, with your work. With the, with the tacos, right, where I bet you wear a, a, a bunch of different hats, right? That, that's probably valuable experience even now, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I'm going to assume, man, once you're, once you're, quote, in the club, right, and, you, and you've got that first college gig, like you said, you're, you're on the road, you're recruiting, you're going to camp, so you're probably bumping into other coaches. I suspect that's what led to the next jump in your career. Is that accurate or not? hundred percent. So once I graduated from Misericordia with my master's degree, I really didn't know what was going to happen next. And I remember being nervous to find out what the next stop was going to be. And if there was going to be a next stop <clears throat> and one of those, uh, you know, one of those coaches that I networked with was a guy named Bear Davis, who's, uh, you know, previously the head coach of the Ohio machine, but at the time he was the head coach of Robert Morris out in, outside of Pittsburgh. And, uh, would drive across the state every year to, to work at one of his uh, tournaments. And uh, out of the blue, he gave me a call and said, hey, I was just down in Shreveport, Louisiana, doing a clinic. And there's a college down there that's looking for a head coach. And I threw him your name so they might be giving you a call because I knew that you had told me that you were looking for whatever was next after you graduated from uh, your, your master's. Uh, so I ended up taking a uh, job down in Shreveport at Centenary College, who's now a D3 program. Um, and that was another extremely unique and wild experience. Uh, took the head coach, uh, the college job, and then within a month or so, ended up becoming a 
high school head coach as well. Uh, so we would have high school practice from four to six and college practice from seven to nine and a lot of dual road trips where we would play a high school team. We'd play a JV team, a varsity team, and then a college game. And all three teams would be on the same bus. Um, so that was uh, obviously a wild experience, experience as well. So that, that sounds completely insane. But what I love about it, though, is the how much experience you got jammed into a really short time period, I bet, right? Yeah, no offense to uh, anyone who coached in Louisiana at that point, but it was uh, it was interesting to be one of the top coaches in Louisiana. I know that's obviously nothing to uh, really brag about, but uh, to go from the Northeast where I felt like I was so far behind so many people to then coach in Louisiana and feel like you kind of had a, a mile head start on a lot of people and then uh, you know, didn't have a ton of assistant coaches at those programs either and had to take the lessons I learned from the previous job about how to, you know, be in charge of many hat, many aspects and wear many hats. Uh, and that was, uh, yeah, like I said, an, an amazing experience. And I learned so much from being in a city that was just so new and young to lacrosse and was just hungry to learn and, uh, and grow. Did you... In, in that role, I mean, you were serving at, at Centenary, but also at a local high school. I mean, did you inevitably also find yourself back out at the youth level doing camps and doing outreach and stuff as well? Yeah, so during, the, during those years, we ran a uh, youth team in the offseason. Uh, and in the summer, I, what I would do is I would sign a nine-year lease, a nine-year, nine-month lease for an apartment and then those three months of the summer, June, July, August, I'd put all my stuff in storage and just would travel the Northeast and, 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 and any, any, any camp that would have me, uh, I, w- I would work it. Uh, I went from, you know, dorm to couch to assistant coach's house to my parents' house to dorm to dorm to couch to just, you know, living out of a bag for three months. And, uh, you know, it was certainly not a hard job. It was extremely fun. Got to meet a million people and a million kids and spread the, uh, the word of our school and get our school's name out there. And, uh, yeah, and, and just live the life of a traveling college lacrosse coach. And those were the uh, bit of the golden years, if that makes sense. But, no, it does. And, it, and I go back to the, the, the comments you made earlier about so many – young coaches now trying to short circuit the process, right? Right. And now having some context about your experience, it's like, man, now I get what he's talking about, right? Because so far in everything you've described, there hasn't been much of a short circuit, dude. You... No, I, I feel like I haven't skipped a lot of rungs on the, uh, on the ladder. <laughs> <laughs> and some would even say I've taken a few steps back, but that's, uh, I'll let them have their opinion, I suppose. So, so how long were you at Centenary? I was there for three years, October of 08 until August of 2011. Oh, wow. All right. That was relatively recent. Yeah. So did you, did you leave Centenary? The age-old question, were you, were you pushed or were you pulled to something else? Sure. So like I said, every summer I would work a trillion camps. And I remember cold emailing uh, Lars Tiffany at Brown and saying, hey, I'm at, I'm at Blue Chip 225 at Bryant right up the road. 
And it seems like right after their camp, you're holding the camp as well. Uh, I'd love to come and work your camp if you'll have me. You know, I probably sent out more emails that got, you know, no responses than the ones that got yeses. And he, he wrote me back and he said, you know, I think it's great to have someone. He essentially thought I was from Louisiana uh, and said, you know, it's great to have a diverse staff of camp coaches who are from around the country. I'd love to have you. Come on down. So worked his camp for two summers. And the second summer, I uh, got to know their assistant coaches really well. And at that point, I had kind of educated myself on the landscape. And, you know, obviously you're allowed a, a head coach a first assistant coach, a second assistant coach, and those are all full-time paid jobs. Uh, but then you're uh, allowed a volunteer coach uh, who's you know a non-paid job or at least not paid from the school. And I asked him, I said, uh, you know, you guys, I noticed you guys don't have a volunteer. It's only the three of you. And their assistant was like, why do you want it? And I'm like, uh, well, yeah. So that pretty much turned into me taking the Brown volunteer assistant job. And I always joke with people that my mother acted like it was some prestigious job that I earned my way into. <laughs> and that there was a million people clamoring for this job. When in fact, I just said, hey, you guys know a volunteer. You want to be our volunteer? Yeah, sure. You know, that's kind of how it happened to be. I'm walking from the cafeteria back to the fields to do another session at camp. Uh, had a couple more phone calls with Lars about the parameters and the situation and ended up being the volunteer assistant coach at Brown for a year uh, from the fall of 11 into the spring of 2012. Yeah, that's an awesome story. Right place, right time, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's an awesome story. What, as, as that volunteer assistant, what was your role there at Brown? Um, two. <laughs> I had two roles. Now, let's say three. Number one was to take all of the cold emails we would get or cold emails and uh, questionnaires that would get filled out and put those kids into a database. That was a big chunk of my job. I was terrible at that because it's awful. Um, second role was to not coach the faceoff guys per se, but to make sure that they were doing their drills and blow the whistle when they needed a whistle to be blown uh, <laughs> before practice. So I never really corrected them. I would more say, all right, let's go. Let's get into this. All right, let's keep going. All right, stay focused and blow a whistle when they were going live. So and I did a little film coordination. I did some social media for them. Uh, I did some technology. Funny story, they would, to do their, their, their game plans and scouting reports, they would take the head coach's laptop and the head coach would start the word file, type it, his part, hand the laptop to the assistant coach. He'd type in his part and then hand the laptop to the second assistant coach and he'd type his part. And I'm like, fellas, there's this thing called Google Docs and we can all, we can all manipulate and, and edit the document at the same exact time. And it's like, there were like their heads exploded because they could all just, they didn't, the one coach didn't have to wait for the other coach to be finished to literally physically hand him a computer. So those little things like that was probably my biggest role. But yeah, like I said, doing kind of the dirty work, the, the jobs that no one wanted to do and uh, making sure the face off guys were getting their reps. I enjoyed the, uh, the, 
the recruiting database or the recruit database, did, did, did you, at, at any point, maybe a year or two later, did you see some kid at Syracuse and a light went off like, shit, I forgot to enter him in the database. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think, you know, obviously I was not evaluating talent on the road. Those that's where the, you know, I don't think uh, volunteers are not allowed to actually, they do. You know, they'll get hired to work a camp or a tournament, and it's their job to pick the all-star team. And they're paid to do that. And obviously, when they're doing that, they're evaluating, and they can bring back information to the coaches. But an, a, a volunteer assistant is not allowed to recruit or evaluate. So essentially, and this, you know, this is no no secret. It happens at every Division One team and some D3s as well. Their uh, prospect camps or summer overnight camps are – a huge way to supplement the income of the assistant coaches and the volunteers. So it was my job to get all of this information into a database to then email all of them information about camps and the kids that were going to be recruited by the team. They, uh, the coaches knew who those kids were right? and they right. were, you know, you have a star system within the database and you're, 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 you know, the coach is only really looking at the five and the four stars. So, yeah, I really had nothing to do with any evaluation or recruiting of players. And thank God, because it's a hard job to do at the D1 level, that's for sure. So, 2012, we're, we're approaching your, your, your Southwest Texas time, right? So how, yeah. What? So, so, the summer before I took the Brown job, I worked a clinic, a Rob Pinnell, Max Seabald camp at TCU. Uh, and one of the uh, camp counselors was the club president at Texas State, a Plano kid by the name of Clark Dansby, who uh, we stayed in touch. And I had, you know, before I went off to Providence to coach at Brown, I proposed to my now wife and kind of knew that that year at Brown was not going to be a long-term deal. I always call it my year in residence, bad pay, bad hours, but learning a lot. So throughout that whole year, Clark and I had kind of stayed in touch. How's your season going? You know, I'm probably moving back to Texas with you know, my wife's family from there. Uh, after this year at Brown, would love to connect with you guys any way I could. And as their season kind of went into the, they didn't have a great season in 12 and they uh, decided to part ways with their head coach. So Clark essentially said, the job's yours if you want it. And I said, I, I need it. I don't want it. I need it. So uh, after that year at Brown, my wife and I got married that summer. We moved to Austin, and I became the head coach at, at Texas State University, the Bobcats. So what – I, I remember your time at, at, at Texas State, and I remember some of the boys you had who, who played there. I mean, some of the experience that you just referred to, you know, recruiting and going to all those camps and evaluating town, all that stuff – you, you accumulated some pretty good talent at Texas State, right? Did, did, did all that experience help you accumulate that talent, or was it just dumb luck? It was no doubt all of that experience played into that extremely because, and I don't make, I try not to make it seem like I was a better coach than other guys in the MCLA. I feel like I was just lucky enough to be in situations like Misericordia and Centenary and Brown to know how to build a program, 
I didn't, I didn't research it. I didn't study it. I didn't go out and learn it. I wish it was osmosis. You know, it was being around people that knew how to do it, that, Hey, come here, look at this. Look at what I'm doing. This is how you're supposed to do it. You know, as lazy as it sounds, it wasn't me seeking it out. I was just around it. Right. And, and was able to be around programs that were building and grinding to get better and get kids. So when I got the Texas state job, I was like, this is, this is a dream job. I can, I can sell this school. You know, it's hard to sell a, it's hard to sell a small liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere for lack of a better term. Uh, you're, you're trying to convince kids to come here. Uh, you know, Hey, come here, pay 40 grand to come to a school of a thousand kids. And, you know, we don't really have that many athletic trainers, but you know, we got a, we're D3 or whatnot. I'm just, you know, trying to make an example, but, at Texas State, I could sell that thing. It was a, I always say it was a school that I would have gone to if I grew up in Texas. Yeah, I mean, how, how hard is it to sell San Marcos, right? I always say it's, um, there's a million majors when you, when you inevitably want to change your major after you realize you don't want to be in economics anymore or finance. Um, it's on the side of a mountain. There's a spring-fed river that runs through the middle of campus. Yep. If you want to go urban, you're an hour south of Austin. You're an hour north of San Antonio. Um, and, you know, I hate to say it, but there's a couple girls there, too. Yeah. So it wasn't, uh, frankly, a lot of Houston and Dallas kids had never heard of Texas State. Obviously, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that their football and basketball teams are in a small conference that are never on television. Right. You know, we would say it's harder to get into Texas State and, you know, Tech, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Oklahoma State, not to put down those schools, but they get better student athletes or just students in general because they're more visible. And, uh, you know, I would have kids in Dallas that are like, I've never heard of Texas State before. I'm like, come on down. I'll buy you lunch. Come down and see the school. And, yeah, I remember the 2000. The 2015 team wanted to win in the LSA. We had about 45 kids on our team, which at the MCLA level, especially in Texas, that's unheard of. Yeah, and that's what I want to ask you about, right? So I, I talked with um, Tim Hilby a little bit about this, right? I mean, the, the, the problem with these these Texas, the MC, these generally with these MCLA Texas teams is, you know, year to year, there can be such a big fluctuation. Right. right? And... It, what, what do you think accounts for that? And what do you think accounted for your success at Texas State? Well, I just remember going to every single tournament in high school game I could go to. Uh, some tournaments I'd be coaching a club team, and then I would, you know, watch kids play while I was coaching against them or in between games. Some tournaments I would just go to and bring a lawn chair. Um, I would try to meet any high school coach I could. Tell them, uh, you know, about myself or, hey, you, you know this guy. I know him. I grew up with him or I played with him at this tournament. So trying to just network with as many high school coaches as I could and constantly contacting them. You know, there's a saying that a couple of my buddies in the Northeast always say, R-D-O-P, recruit daily or perish. And if you're not recruiting every single day, you're not going to win. And whether it was a text message or a Facebook message, you know, how's so-and-so doing? Where's he looking? Or, hey, I saw 
so-and-so went off to a D3 in Wisconsin. Is he liking it there? Does he want to come down here and pay a lot less money and have a Whataburger in his town? You know, like, have him re- tell him to reach out if he's not happy. Um, so it was just constantly contacting as many people as I could and selling the school and selling the program and selling the facilities and selling the gear. It's, you know, just doing anything you could. I remember I redesigned the website but essentially by hand, by myself. And I also think that had a lot to do with why the kids bought in. You know, a lot of coaches think that kids should just, right off the bat, unconditionally follow you and support you and sell out for you. When in fact, sometimes you got to put in work to earn their commitment. And it's probably backwards engineering, but it's a fact. You know, I think when the kids saw me going out and recruiting, they saw me doing our social media, reworking our website, you know, doing community service events where we would run free lacrosse camps. They're like, well, this guy's really working for us. Like, he's really putting our name out there. I'm not going to skip practice on Tuesday. Was, you know, so. So was was, was your attitude and, and, and the the way you handled that, was that was that typical of an MCLA coach or was that atypical of an MCLA coach, you think? Frankly, I think that's atypical. I think a lot of them have full-time jo- A lot of the coaches have full-time jobs and families that don't allow them to do that. So it's. It's not that they don't care. I just don't think it's, you know, I was newly married. Coaching in Texas State was my only job for the first year. Um, So I had nothing better to do on a weekend than to drive up to Dallas and go to the the Maitland tournament or drive to Houston and go to the Sci Fair. What was that one called in January? They used to always have one. It would get rained out every other year. Or go, or go to the Longhorn shootout and sit in a lawn chair. Go to T99 and try to work it. Or, you know, there were so many opportunities to just go watch tons of high school kids play. And the, uh, the great thing was I was normally the only college coach there. You know, I used to always joke around and say that Texas State could build a program if the coach goes to T99 and the Longhorn shootout. Two weekends. You'll see every kid in Texas. That was obviously when the Longhorn shootout was a lot bigger. And I think maybe the... The Cowboy Cup Texas draw maybe taken taken over for that size of a tournament, but you can go to two or three of those, and if you see every kid and take notes and talk to their coaches, you can build the program. Yeah. But you got to be persistent. You know, once you get your their names, then you got to start hammering them with text messages or you know Facebook messages. And now it's Instagram DMs or whatever, and say, hey, come down for a visit. You can stay with so and so or. Hey, there's this kid from your high school already on our program. Connect with him. Ask him if he likes it or not, you know? And I'm always talking to the guys at practice, like, hey, what's uh, what's your buddy Jimmy, who's a senior this year, what's he doing? Hit him up for me. He's going to listen to you more than he's going to listen to me. So it's just constantly about, and, and frankly, it's it's a sales job, right? So it's all just about selling the school and selling the program. And if you have a program that you're passionate about and a school that you believe is a great school, which I truly believe Texas State is, um, it was easy to sell. So do you, do you think that what you just hit on right at the end, which was you, you truly believed in what, what Texas State was and what it could do, is that the piece that's maybe missing with other MCLA coaches? Or is it just, hey, this is not their full-time gig and they just don't have time to dedicate like you did? 
Well, I don't know if they why would they be coaching there if they're not if they don't like the school, right? right. Uh, you know, a lot of MCLA jobs are not frankly sought after. Sometimes they're they're low paying and you don't get a ton of commitment. And it's not a lot of fun, and um, you do it because you love it. Um, but yeah, I think a lot. And once again, I just don't think a lot of guys have had the experience that I've had. You know, coaching at a small D three with not a lot of kids. Coaching at a school in Shreveport, Louisiana, with zero kids, trying to build a program, um, you know. So I, w- I had an advantage by going to those, going, working those jobs, and saying. And there are some guys who are like, "Oh, I don't want to go sit in a lawn chair and watch these kids play all weekend." Whereas I guess I'm just wired different, but I love that. Yeah, I love sitting in a lawn chair and watching kids play and writing notes, and then approaching the kids and their parents or the or the. Or their high school coach after the game saying, wow, that was awesome. You did a great job that, you know, you slid well on that one play and really knocked that guy down and got a GB. That was awesome. You know, here's my business card. Give me a call or, you know, go follow our Instagram real quick. Send me a message if you're interested. We'd love to have you. Or, hey, I heard you're committed to so-and-so school. Things don't work out. Just give me a call, man. So, you know, I... I, I, I'm trying to tread the water lightly here and not bash other coaches because I understand that everyone has a different personality and different situations in their lives. But man, I loved going to high school tournaments in the off season or in the you know early in the in the season, just watching as many kids as I could and watching a half and then swinging the lawn chair over to do another half and seeing a buddy from New York who might coach one of the teams, might coach a youth team in the tournament. As you know, these tournaments are just fun. There's just a million people around, and you're kind of around your 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 culture, your your scene. If that if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So how I I don't remember how you ended up leaving Texas State. Is it is it a, a, a story you are willing to discuss? Oh yeah, I mean, of course. I, I, don't, I don't know what the what the story is. So November of fourteen, my son was born, and I. Uh, had been working on, and I still do, as a full-time employee at University of Texas San Antonio, UTSA. So full-time, I'm an instructional developer. I build online classes at UTSA, and I uh, was driving from UTSA to San Marcos. Oh, wow. It's about a 55-minute hour drive for practice, and uh, had a newborn son, and uh, actually decided to step down and become, you know, the assistant coach. We joked around that we I was the... I was the associate head coach, um, but hired a friend of mine, Kyle Saunders, who was a Texas State alum, uh, to be the head coach. And our deal was that I would take one of the, we had, I believe, four practices a week. I would take one of them off per week to be with my family. And he would be the head coach, and I would be the assistant coach. Uh, and did that for a year. We won the, the, the league that year. We won the LSA and made it to the national tournament. Um, and then... Uh, coach fall ball. And then by the end of fall ball, I was approached uh, by the Reagan high school club in San Antonio to take over as the head coach of their program. And, you know, a lot of the stars aligned in the fact that a lot of the administrative work that I had to do with Texas state, the parents did for me and it was much less of a drive, obviously. Um, so just decided to transition back into the high school game, uh, in the fact that it was a little less, uh, you know, I'm trying to find the right word, but it was just uh, you know, less less time away from the family and 
still got to be able to be a coach uh, and didn't have to do a lot of the paperwork and registration and and chasing kids around. So that was uh, that was a big reason. But obviously, I still have a huge place in my heart for Texas State Lacrosse. Played in the alumni game last weekend. Had a great time. Love that town. Love the kids I coached. Uh, the coach there now is uh, turning the program around. They have uh, they almost doubled their roster in the last year. So excited to see what they're uh, what they're going to do this year. That's awesome. So how did the, the the Reagan High School folks? I mean, had you expressed an interest in you know trying to get closer to the home, or was it just dumb luck that that you heard about the job, or how did that work out? So as you know, we play uh, men's box on Sunday nights here in San Antonio. We have a an amazing box facility here. There was once ice that they decided to turn into a turf facility because there's an ice rink right next to it. Um, so a lot of the guys that play in that league are also local coaches. And uh, one of them was a dad of a player on the Reagan team and said, hey, we're, we're in the market for a coach and kind of took me out to lunch and put the cards on the table and decided that I was going to uh, go after that position. Yeah, so it's um, you know I, I have a lot, I have parents and, and administrators of teams ask me all the time, you know, how do you find coaches, right? Where where do you find them? Um, and it's men's league, right? And it, and, it, and, it, and it's a little bit less than it used to be here in Houston because the, the Houston economy is so thoroughly and completely dependent on oil, right? And as oil has been depressed, there's been fewer and fewer new faces, right? So as a result. You know, fewer players and fewer coaches, but that's still generally the, the first place to start looking for coaches. And that's interesting. That's the same experience there. Well, we had a fall meeting for San Antonio high school coaches, and one of the coaches said, "Oh, well, how do you find all these coaches?" And I said, "Well, Sunday nights at seven at Northwoods. Yep, there's always somebody new popping in every couple of weeks, and it's almost like the it's almost like when the pretty girl walks into a dance, the first guy that talks to her." <laughs> you know, usually, usually has the best shot of dating her. Yeah, so yeah. If, you, if you're not at the dance, you're probably not going to get a girlfriend. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Exactly. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So how long were you at Reagan? So I coached there once again for three years. Uh, we won three district championships. Our last year, we won our first ever state playoff game. Uh, we won the first round of the Super Regionals and then ended up losing the second round of the Super Regionals to a strong Highland Park D2 team. What was the uh, what was the history before before you landed there? Had it, how long it had existed? What had been what kind of success that they had prior to you? Yeah, they had had some success. Uh, they 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 cast a wide net. Uh, they pull from a bunch of high schools. I know that's a a hot topic in Texas lacrosse, high school lacrosse. Uh, they they're one of the worst supported programs by their actual school district. Um. But I believe they started around 08 or 09, I want to say, or even earlier. Uh, they'd had some success. They uh, they made some Final Fours back when, you know, the state playoffs was one team from each district and there were no Super Regionals. Right. Um, they had some kids play in college, had some kids play club. Uh, I coached a Reagan kid at Texas State when I was there. So they'd had some 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 progress. I remember when I was in Shreveport, we played in the, the Longhorn Shootout with my high school team, Cato Magnet from Shreveport, and we played against Reagan, and they were pretty good. Uh, so they were one of the younger teams in San Antonio, obviously compared to the St. Mary's Hall Central Catholic group, TMI. 
Um, but yeah, they had, had a good tradition. Uh, they had a huge, huge youth push, and I was certainly the benefactor of all of that. Uh, the kids I coached had been playing together and had been playing since about fourth grade. Uh, so it was uh, certainly nice to step in and have a group of kids who were bought in and then essentially just apply my coaching style uh, to those kids. And uh, we had a great run. Yeah, that, that's what you touched on exactly what my question was going to be, which was, you know, there, it sounds like there had been some success in, in, a, in a foundation there. So did you come in and, and did you, you know, did you feel like it, there was a cultural change that you had to bring in something drastically different or were you really able to build off of what was there? No, I think I really kind of built on what was there and took a lot of the principles that I had learned as an assistant coach along the way at the college level, you know, very small nuances that were a little bit eye-opening to them. Uh, you know, they had, they had some good athletes. They had some kids who loved lacrosse. Uh, but when you sometimes, you know, when you bring in some college concepts or even concepts that are very simple yet have just never been taught to them, uh, it can really take them to the next level. And I think that's, that's what we accomplished. I had great assistant coaches there as well. Uh, young man, Tyler Cody, who is a uh, Reagan alum, played at Plymouth State up in New Hampshire and plays box with us now down here in San Antonio. Uh, he was great to have on board. Uh, and like I said, I feel we just took him to the next level and uh, we were undefeated in San Antonio for three years, which is pretty awesome. Oh, wow. That is awesome. That is awesome. So after Reagan, you landed where you are now, right? You're at, you're at Alamo, Alamo Heights, right? Yep, Alamo Heights, uh, down here in San Antonio. I believe they've had a program since 2008. Uh, you know, going from Reagan, who, like I said, is very poorly supported by their school district, and they pull from a lot of schools as well, to Alamo Heights, who I believe is one of the best supported high school programs in Texas by the actual ISD, and we pull from one high school. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a difference, um, but... We have a very bright future, huge youth program. I have some great middle school and youth coaches. Um, and uh, we're really excited about our season this year. We have a, a big group of kids. Should ho hopefully have about 40 or 50 in our high school program this year from 9 through 12. Uh, our JV went undefeated last year. Our 7th, 8th grade team won the San Antonio Championship. Uh, a lot of the kids are playing club ball with me who hadn't before. So we're just excited to uh, turn the corner with Alamo Heights. You mentioned the difference with the relationship to the school district between Reagan and Alamo Heights. I mean, coming from a coach's perspective, I mean, what are some tangible examples of the difference between the school district relationships? Well, we're, uh, we're able to use a field on the ISD grounds. Uh, they, that they essentially don't charge us for, whereas Reagan is, was paying for a field at a, essentially a horse farm or whatever, like a, uh, uh, you know, their practice field is essentially, if you lived at the practice field, you would play for Smithson Valley. So their field isn't even in their area of where they pull kids from. Uh, they don't have a game field. They have to rent a turf field essentially about 20 to 30 miles away from their um, their home base. Uh, whereas at Alamo Heights, we play games right on our 
on our practice field, which is a middle school grass field, fully lit, nice stands, close proximity to all the, the kids' houses. Um, and, uh, you know, this just yesterday and the day before, my coaching staff and I, one of the elementary schools in Alma Heights, every single kid in the entire elementary school played lacrosse in two days. Yeah, I saw that. So, so awesome. we went into their phys ed courses in the second year we've done that. We'll go to the other elementary school in December. Uh, but just the fact that they're even, you know, at Reagan, they won't even entertain that email or that phone call. Uh, and here in Alma Heights, they're, you know, over the moon about having us come in and teach something new to the kids. What's, what do you think the difference is? Uh, well, I think, you know, Alma Heights, a lot of the, the kids that I coach, their grandparents are from there. They've, they're, they're, their family is from that area. Whereas Reagan is in Stone Oak, which 30 years ago didn't exist. There wasn't one house there. It was farmland. And it's essentially suburban sprawl. You know, uh, you know there's, a, there's points of Stone Oak where you could drive to the top of the hill and just overlook thousands of houses. Uh, it's a 6A school. Johnson High School is about three miles away. It's another 6A school. Um, so I think the school district is just busy. And there's so many things going on that they just don't have the bandwidth to deal with another club. Because their schools are massive. I want to say Reagan is about 6,000 students. I could be wrong. Uh, whereas I went to a high school of 800. And I believe... Um, Alma Heights is about 1,600, I want to say. So uh, I think that just the fact that it's a, a brand new high school, I, I think Reagan might be 15 or years old. Don't quote me on that. But And I'm not trying to make excuses for them because they should support it because it's better than kids vaping while playing video games, that's for sure. Yeah, but yeah. they, uh, like I said, there's just so much going on in that town and that school that it's probably just hard for them to, they don't have the people to manage all of that stuff. Yeah, I ran into, when I started the, the team at Cy Woods, what I ran into at Cy Woods was, you know, a, a huge school and a huge school district and administrators who were terrified of setting any kind of precedent, right? So right. What, what they didn't want to do was, you know, provide some exception for a team or provide access to somebody who they might be obligated to provide that same access to everyone, right? They were just super concerned about not not creating that, that precedence, right? It sounds like, sounds like maybe something similar, right, with Reagan. I don't know. I think you're definitely right. Uh, yeah, there's just, it's just overwhelming. So do you think the... The Alamo Heights, you mentioned the families and the history of the families there. Have those history, have those families, I mean, have they exercised, you know, some influence? Or is it just because it's an established area with established families and, and it's just a different way of doing business? I definitely think that some of the families have flexed their muscles with the school saying, you know, my son deserves... My son and his friends deserve your support, but they're also involved. Uh, they're involved in the PTA. They're involved in the, um, the booster clubs. They're involved in other clubs, academic clubs. They're involved in fundraising for the school district. So I think with that comes a lot of, uh, uh, you know, justification to saying, 
you know, my kid and his friends and his teammates and their coaching staff are organized. Uh, you know, they're in the community. They're doing good things. We have first graders playing all the way to 12th grade. We deserve your support. And, um, you know, the school doesn't, you know, besides giving us a field, they don't give us any money, which we're not asking for. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't, they don't pay the coaches. They don't, we don't have coaches that work at the school district, but it's little things like including us in the pep rallies, including us in, uh, you know, the yearbook, including us in the announcements of the school, things that don't cost them money. Right. You know, those are huge to me. It makes us visible in the school. It makes the kids on our team feel like they're part of the school and the athletics department. Uh, and it really goes a long way. And, there, and there's the, you know, I think the, the proof is in the, the pudding on that because, you know, what you described at Reagan was, you know, a team that serviced multiple large high schools, right? And had, it sounded like, maybe fewer numbers than what you have at Alamo Heights, a single high school, right? Right. So, yeah, the, you've obviously, through all those, right, have, have, have driven that, that, that participation and driven the, you know, those folks coming out and playing lacrosse. That's awesome. Yeah. I love, um, I don't know where to insert this in the discussion, so I guess I will now. I, I, I love last year when, when Magnolia, we played Smithson Valley, and I sent you a text. I said, hey. Tell, tell me something about Smithson Valley. We we played them this weekend, and 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 you were you were you were resolute in your support of of San Antonio Lacrosse, <laughs> and you wouldn't give me any scouting report on Smithson Valley. <laughs> that definitely comes from the college level, whereas uh, conference teams don't give scouts to non-conference <laughs> teams about interconference. That was a little unwritten rule. Yeah, I love that. That was good. So. Tell me about the tacos. Where, where, where did the tacos start? I mean, I, I've probably been aware of the tacos now for, man, I'm guessing four or five years, maybe. Um, I think, I think our first summer was maybe the first time we ever played was indoor. We played box. And I want to say probably the best way to find that out is look at our Instagram. But the, um, I want to say this upcoming summer will be our fourth summer of, of travel teams. Um, but yeah, so it just came out of a, you know, I, I, had, uh, I had done some work with Mission Lacrosse here in San Antonio who do good things, uh, but kind of wanted to do my own thing and run a club program and uh, really unite the city. When I was at Reagan, I would ask the kids like, uh, who are the best kids at Alma Heights? And they would say, I don't even know, I don't know any of their names. And I was like, that is a problem. It's a problem that there's only six to eight team high school teams here and that you guys don't have a re- you know, relationship with them. Right. You know, the best right. thing about, the, you know, I played on a travel team in high school and uh, it was it wasn't always the best kids. It was the kids who loved lacrosse the most, if that makes sense. And when you would see them uh, in the spring game. It was so much more fun. It made the game much more enjoyable. And you looked forward to seeing your buddy that you played all summer with and, you know, talk a little trash on the field. And then, uh, you know, when the game ends, you're hugging each other and talking about where they're going to college. And 
and so on and so forth. So to me, it was just about uniting the city, uh, bringing kids in that wanted to play extra lacrosse and do uh, take the extra mile and play a little travel lacrosse. And obviously going back to me talking about how much I love tournaments, off-season tournaments, and traveling as a team and hanging out in the tent, I wanted that for my kids. And a lot of them only knew San Antonio lacrosse. They would get crushed by the out-of-district teams. And uh, they didn't really know a lot of kids on the other teams. Uh, but the whole thing is just about bringing San Antonio lacrosse together. So you're pulling – I mean, you've got TMI boys. You've got Reagan boys. You've got Smithson Valley boys. You, you've got a little bit of everybody on the tacos, yeah? Yeah, so this summer we'll likely have a kid from every single program. Uh, in the fall this year, I think we do. I think we're missing – uh, we have, there's only one program that we don't pull from and they're very new, Harlan. Uh, we have a kid who's on our, actually on our program now who played for them last year, but his family just moved. So he's going to play for Bernie this year. And we have another young man who's, uh, plays for us. He's actually Canadian, but he's playing hockey in the fall. So this summer, like I said, we'll have a kid from every single program in San Antonio, which what, is the goal, of course. Yeah, and that's what I was about to say. What's cool is you clearly take delight in that. Right, I, I think so often, you know, the the, the, the variations on, on off-season lacrosse are, hey, I'm going to keep my whole team together and we're going to play in the off-season, or I'm going to collect coaches from a couple big teams and we're going to pull the boys from those couple big teams, right, and, and play together in the off-season. But it, it's pretty clear that, and, and man, I love the way you stated it, that was your goal, right? Because you could tell how excited you were to pull boys from all the teams in, in the city, right? Yeah, and I think that there will come a day where and it is a free market economy that someone might decide to start another high school travel team in the summer in San Antonio. And uh, if that day comes, I'll obviously do my best to not necessarily promote them, but to understand that that's just part of the game. Right. And uh you know, and all I can do is rely on my coaching and my, my reputation and my experience and the word of mouth of the parents and the players. And um, if the other club gets more kids, then so be it. You know, um, I am thankful and lucky that there's, uh, we're the only travel team in San Antonio. The other end of the spectrum is the fact that I'm turning kids away now, which oh, wow. really, which is awful, obviously. Yeah, that's a bummer, right? Yeah. Um, there's kids who love lacrosse and they want to be there, but maybe they're just not as skilled as, uh, as the guys ahead of them on the, on the roster. Uh, so they, uh, they just don't get an invite and we're constantly reworking that. And the one thing I did this year is I, uh, I invited a, a parent from each of the high school programs to be part of a loose, uh, you know, advisory board that we've put together that's just essentially an email string, you know, and whether it's, hey, this kid on your team is pretty good. What's he doing? Do you know his parents? Get him on board. We'd love to have him. Or, hey, what tournaments do you think we should do this summer? Or, uh, you know, the the fields are going to get shut down or there's a chance of thunderstorms, little things like that. So my, you know, my goal obviously is to keep the, parents and the players as connected to the program as possible. I don't want to run a dictatorship. The parents are spending their hard-earned money with us, and I want to know their opinion. I want to know, should we go out of state? What's your goal in this? Do you want your kid to get recruited, or do you want your kid just to have a good time and meet some friends? 
if it's the latter, then let's just find some Texas tournaments and we'll go to them and we'll have some fun. But if you're really eager to get recruited or get seen, let's take a different route. Or maybe only a handful of kids are looking to get recruited. Let's push it on some prospect days or some individual camps or some bigger clubs that they can join when we're not playing to go find some of those out-of-state tournaments. So it's really been a uh, kind of collective um, you know, experience and journey so far. Do you find that's an interesting point, right? Because you could have a po two, two distinct populations, right? Folks that just right. enjoy playing, want to play in Texas, want to play local tournaments, and another population who really want to play competitive, get recruited, you know, go to big tournaments. Have you found yourself yet within the, 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 the tacos construct having different types of teams? We're not necessarily different types of teams. Right now we only run a essentially a varsity and a JV, a 10th, 11th, or 11th, 12th grade team and a 9th, 10th grade team. Um, there's definitely a huge difference between my older team and my younger team. Uh, the older team we call the Tacos. The younger team is obviously the Taquitos. Um, the Taquitos have been playing longer, and they've been playing together longer, obviously, with Mission. Uh, and, and a lot of them are a lot more um, angled to try to play college across. So uh, last year, we just took them to Colorado Springs. I didn't get enough uh, kind of feedback, or I didn't get enough yeses when I sent them a questionnaire, like, would you want to go to Colorado Springs? And a lot of the older kids were just saying, no, I, I'm not really eager to play in college. And it's a lot of money and um, so on and so forth. And a handful of them ended up free agenting at the same tournament. So they got a chance to still play in the tournament. I hooked them up with some friends of mine who coach in Colorado. And um, they played on some of their travel teams. Um, but the younger group is a lot more eager than the older group. And, uh, you know, that's a function of our club being new. And it's a function of lacrosse growing in San Antonio. And y'all, I think you mentioned it earlier, but you, you play both box and in field with the, with the tacos, right? Yeah, so our box program has become very popular and uh, we've, we've grown. We've grown it uh, at the right pace, I believe. Um, and it's obviously a huge part of our development. And we're really excited to play in these fall tournaments and uh, kind of see if the box skills translate, see how much better we can look. So the first couple years, I would just have an eight or nine week box session where it would be every Sunday for two hours. And, you know, every, we would just get as many kids to sign up as possible. And every Sunday we'd throw the sticks in the middle or we'd just play pickup and just roll them out and go. I own about three or four sets of goalie gear. So I bring the goalie gear every week and strap up the guys and uh, play box as, as traditionally as we can. Uh, and then this summer we just found out that we had such great numbers that we just decided to make a four-team league. And uh, we had four coaches and they drafted uh, teams. And then we had uh, an eight-week schedule, six regular season games, then semis and finals in a consolation game, and it was amazing. That's there awesome. was parents and, and friends and brothers and sisters were all up in the crowd screaming and yelling and and, and, and getting into the game. Um, I refed all the games, which was a horrible idea because I'm a terrible ref. Um, but a lot of the game, a lot of the games were close. 
Uh, the championship game, the, one of the semi-games went to a shootout, and the championship game was a one-goal game. So the games, the teams were very balanced. And um, the other thing that was uh, a, a great to see was attendance was awesome. And I think that it was a function of us having an organized league. Kids were not as uh, quick to go to the lake house on a Sunday, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So they, everybody was there, and they were, they were in it for their team, and they were, uh, they were dialed in, and they were uh, committed. And, uh, you know, we're looking to maybe put in six teams next year, depending on how many kids we uh, sign up. And that's essentially open enrollment. You know, going back to me having to, to uh, you know, tell kids no, they can't play on our field teams. We want our boxing to be as inclusive as possible. No matter how good or bad you are at lacrosse, there will always be a spot in the box league. Oh, that's awesome. How what um, what was in what was included in the box league? I mean, was there were there you, know, you said you had a draft and coaches? Were there practices? Were there uniforms? There was obviously floor time, right? What what all was included? Not really much besides the games. We had we did one we did one three hour session of drills and practice. It was almost like a combine, uh, and then we did a draft, and then it was eight games. We had five to seven o'clock on Sundays. There was a five o'clock game and a six o'clock game, and uh, that was pretty much it. No jerseys, um, and not a lot of practices. I know that that might sound crazy, and I know that you study coaching intensively. And something I've learned, and I'm sure you have as well, it's if you look at the Canadian model, they rarely practice. Their, the, the ratio from games to practice is almost flipped for, to, to, to American kids. And I kind of wanted to take that. Sure, we'll, we'll, we'll stop a game here and there and, and run up and, and, and do some, some talks and some uh, demos, some things. And that's up to the coaches. I left that up to them. Um, but I just wanted them to compete. And learn on the fly. And, uh, you know, if we found that there was a problem with that, we would obviously change it up. Um, but then what we did for the fall is uh, the, the, the kids that were invited for the, the travel fall field team, we essentially scaled back and only did two tournaments instead of three. But in place of the third tournament, in your registration, we also get box as well on Sundays. And that's essentially pickup. So... We're still playing box all the way through the fall, but essentially it's just the field guys this time. It's it's not as inclusive, unfortunately. Yeah, that's awesome. What the, what what do you think now? Have, having a a box season under your belt now with that league, what, what are you going to change? What could you improve from from oh, last yeah. season to the this upcoming season? We've already had that discussion. Number one, a few weeks ago. About a month ago, maybe a month and a half, Westlake brought their JV and varsity down on a Saturday and scrimmaged us in box. So I essentially made an all-star team out of the box league, a JV team and a varsity team. And we scrimmaged Westlake in, in both, and I hired refs. And I hired two San Antonio guys to, to officiate the games, and they did an awesome job of immersing themselves in a box across, reading the U.S. across box across rules, watching some YouTube videos, communicating with the coaches in email and on the day of the games um, about the nuances, the differences. Obviously, both coaches knew that our players were new to this, the refs were new to this, and a lot of the coaches were new to this. But for my box league next year, I've already decided we're going to hire refs for the entire season. Uh, I, I, obviously, a one-man ref 
I did a lot of standing in the middle while the ball was on both ends of the field. Didn't see a lot of crease calls from me. Didn't even see a lot of penalties. Um, so, uh, and then obviously I, uh, I take myself out of being criticized for the officiating. Uh, and I can, you know, step back and focus more on managing the league and managing the coaches and stepping in, you know, in a more of a commissioner role. So first off the bat, is to get officials. And the officials in San Antonio are keen on learning box across. They, just like you and I, know that there's a wave of box across coming. Right. And, and if you're not on the surfboard, you're going to get swept away to see here. And obviously refs, it's, it's more of a fun game to officiate. It's a different style. You diversify your resume as an official. Uh, it's indoors. You're never getting rained on. You're never getting sunburned. Um, so they're, like I said, they're very keen on learning and, and being a part of this. Number two, I don't think we have a big problem with this, but we need to invest in some shot clocks. We went, we've always gone shot clockless. And I don't think that in our league this summer, we honestly wouldn't have had that many shot clock um, violations. But I think having that visible shot clock up there is, uh, it would, would change the pace of play for sure. We've even discussed getting some cheap flat screen TVs and hooking them up to a, like a Google Chromecast. Oh, yeah. And there's, a, there, there's actually a shot clock app that could connect to the phone in the box. Because uh, shot clocks, physical shot clocks are about 900 bucks for two of them. So we're, we're, that's definitely going to be on the uh, high on its do list for next year. That's awesome. That's awesome that you've already you've got lessons learned and y'all have already discussed them, right? And, and you've got a plan forward for next year. That's, that's you know, and obviously, like you said, I think uniforms would be awesome. It's hard to do if you're drafting a team and then next week you're playing. Um, so we could do something like that. But obviously, that just comes with a higher cost to the parents, right? If you want to keep this league cheaper right. and, and, and be more inclusive and allow more people to afford it, you know, you just rely on the pennies that they already have. Right. It's, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, you know, more than adequate, right? For sure. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about high school lacrosse governance. What uh, you and I went back and forth a little bit about about um, Blake's proposal. Right? And, and, you know, there were two, I think, two THSLL proposals, um, you know, and, and, and ultimately, in the end, enough people probably didn't show up and not enough people were interested and, and effectively nothing was really done, right? Right. Um, you know, maybe give me your opinion about, about what, what happened. Why, why, why didn't we get, you know, enough interest or enough critical mass to, to make a change? What, what do you think that tells us? I, it's hard to put my finger on exact causes. I will say that I think San Antonio is probably the least broken of the four because we're so small and new and we're not really winning a ton of state championships. So we're not really worried about, um, you know, changing everything up. So from my perspective, I didn't really need a lot to change, if that makes sense. Um, I did love Lake's proposal. It was not perfect. There was never a perfect proposal, but I do love where his came from. What I've always said since I started coaching in Texas is 
there's a lot of men who are just not current coaches or have never coached who seem to make a lot of the decisions. And to me, that's frustrating. Uh, I believe that the coaches should be the ones, maybe not all of them, the coaches should be the ones driving the bus. And whether they drive it off the cliff or not is not important. The fact that they should be behind the wheel because we're kind of boots on the ground. We're the, we're the guys that are on the sideline. We're dealing with the parents and the administration and the kids. And we're the ones doing, you know, recruiting events and free clinics. And, uh, you know, it should be up to us to decide how this league is, is run. Uh, I think another huge issue to me is the fact that a lot of the rules are from when the league was a third of the size as it is now. And the rules that were in place then don't really apply to the, the, the size of the league now. Um, now, going back to your question about just kind of the apathy of the coaches, I know a lot of coaches I spoke to just said, hey, man, I just grab my whistle and go to practice and coach games and put my arm around some kids and, and, and go home at the end of practice or end of game. So they're just frankly not that passionate about making change. They just want to do their job. And some of them maybe aren't as uh, – paid as well or taken care of as well and they just kind of do it from a place of love and it's not a uh, you know obviously there's different levels of passion as well in different coaches some people you know there were you had your proxy votes right people that weren't there that just signed over their vote to someone else there's a huge percentage of people that didn't even bother to reply from to the email right and whether that's I don't know if I, that makes me angry or if that just makes me say, hey, different strokes to different folks, man. They're just, it doesn't drive their life like some of us, you know, and it is what it is. And I, I guess in my older age, I just understand that not everyone's going to be as passionate or is, as involved as others. So is the, I'm, I'm curious because your, your perspective in San Antonio, like you said, is different just because of the, where y'all are. In Houston, there, there seems to be a lot of discussion and debate about D1, D2, D3. What are, what are they used for? How are they misused or, or appropriately used? You know, that, is, is that debate of D1, D2, and D3, is, is, that a, is that a thing in San Antonio? Not necessarily, obviously. We're all in one division, right? We're all Division Two. We have two D3 teams here in San Antonio, Harlan and Canyon. Um, but I think they have the potential of catching up and becoming D2, and we would all be kind of housed under one roof. So I think that uh, makes us kind of step back from the argument of who's D1 and D2. Obviously, in Houston and especially in Dallas, teams are seem to be moving every season, and teams who are strong and have huge teams one year get to drop down the next year. And from a you know bird's-eye view, it doesn't make sense to me and um it, it just seems like there's no you know where a houston team would drop down if that exact team was in dallas they wouldn't be allowed to drop down or they would be pushed back up so it doesn't i i, I guess what i'm trying to say is it's inconsistent yeah right <laughs> at, at, at best it's inconsistent <laughs> right um and but i also understand that it's a hard a hard situation you know there's such uniqueness in all the different programs around texas and i give a lot of credit to the thsll board members who are who are volunteers 
But then at the same time, it frustrates me that they don't listen to the coaches and they seem to come off stubborn at times. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and, 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 and that's the, you know, Houston, and just focus on Houston. And Houston's such a, a big city and it's such a sprawling city, right? And, and, you know, you've got teams like Bel Air that actually there's a history behind that program, right? Nick, I, I talked to Nick and we talked a little bit about the history of that program. And you know they've 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 kind of ended up down you know at, at, at the D three level at that designation right and you have these teams it seems like in the Houston area that you know have a tendency to fall down that ladder but then not make their way back up it right right and that's and I don't even know if that matters I, that, that was the question I posed to to Nick right you know Nick's trying to do right by Bel Air and he's trying to work his way back up that ladder. But, you know, the question I posed to him was, you know, does, does it matter? I, I don't know, right? Because, what, they're going to be a, they're essentially a D3 program this year? Is yeah, that true? exactly. And, and you know, I, I look. But then even if you look at, like, a Seven Lakes, they're D2 now, right? Or they're trying to be, like, they're, they're in the same boat, right? Yeah, they're D2. So, you know, if you look at the, the, the D1 in Houston, there hasn't been legitimate growth there in 10 years. Right. So it's, I, 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 and I'm just trying to understand if that even matters, right? Or, you know, are people abusing the system? Is, is, does, it, does it matter if they're abusing the system? Is it possible to abuse the system, right? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I really but you look at, from my perspective, like, when was the last time Woodlands D1 lost a Houston game? Yeah, yeah, who knows? And I... I <laughs> It's probably bad that they're so dominant. It would be much more fruitful if they had a competition. I think them winning the state championship was awesome. But I think in years past, you looked at them and you said, well, they probably don't flourish in the playoffs because they don't have competitive games week in and week out, whereas an ESD Jesuit Highland Park does. Yes. You know, you look at a few years ago, I'm sure the ESD Plano West game, ESD's like, we can't just laugh into this game. And the Woodlands is probably saying they can laugh into a lot of their games and not worry about it. So how do you catch up, right? How do you create parity? Um, you know, you talk about how each program has a different set of circumstances, different coaches, different support, different amounts of money in the, in the, in the, uh, in the account, Right. You know, in the club account, right? Uh, you know, different support from the school, different facilities that are available to them. So it's it's a hard it's a hard nut to crack. Do you think? Do you think that recognition by UIL would solve some or all of that? Right. So a lot of those are resource questions and, and financial questions. Is is school sanctioned being a school sanctioned sport the great equalizer in a lot of those cases yeah this is obviously an issue that's come up recently and i'm not really sure where i stand on it i know a lot of people are opinionated i see the pros of going uil i see the cons of going uil i see the pros of staying club and private and i see the cons of it as well um i don't know if it would be good or bad uh, like i said there's going to be pros and cons the pros of uil it's going to cost parents a lot less money to play lacrosse and a lot more kids are going to have access to lacrosse. Their schools are going to fund a lot of their equipment, their bus rides, their fields, their coaches, their athletic trainers, um, their uniforms, etc. So 
that is a huge pro. But our, our, um, you know, our linebackers coaches going to take jobs away from guys that are, you know, work outside of the district, but are lifelong lacrosse coaches. I'm not sure. Uh, I know there are some opportunities to avoid that. Whereas I believe they have a, a system where you don't, you know, a school teacher wouldn't take your job away. Um, but then again, UIL brings in a lot of restrictions when you can practice, how long you can practice, when you can play, how, you know, I know a big issue is the fact that your high school coach cannot be your club coach. And that comes from the AAU basketball. Um, you know, there were, there was a lawsuit in Dallas a few years ago, in this exact situation where a club coach was also the kid's high school coach. And uh, essentially the, the father was claiming that the kid was cut from his high school team because he decided to play with a different club. And I see that as an issue. And once again, going back to talking about how San Antonio is kind of like, we don't really have that many problems here besides the fact that we just don't have enough teams. It's the same way with me with club. I don't have any other clubs. Kids don't have any other opportunities to play for different clubs. And, um, you know, if there was another club in town, by someone who didn't coach a high school team, I would bring on a different set of circumstances. So uh, I, I'm not sure if UIL would really uh, solve all of our problems. Honestly, I don't see UIL adopting lacrosse anytime soon. I think it has a lot to do with a lot, along the same parallels as the NCAA not adding Division I lacrosse programs. If you look at the last two that have been added that were that were FBS schools, football bowl subdivision schools, Michigan and Utah, they were both fundraised for. Right. The, the school was not in a board meeting saying, we need to add lacrosse. How do we do this? If you look at all of the non-FBS schools who have added, you know, the Richmonds, the Furmans, you know, all the schools, the Bellarmans that have added in the last 10, 15 years. Those are schools without football that need more enrollment and they need more recognition. So they're doing that out of a place of how do we make some money and not even make money, but how do we become more recognized and bring in a diverse population? Whereas Michigan and Utah, Michigan was fundraised. Like they went out to their alums who are very successful. It's a great school. A lot of, you know, big time engineers go there. And Utah was a father of one of the players on the team. Decided to just throw his money down. So going back to what you're saying, um, you know, everyone's talking about how water polo was um, was added. And I think it was the Klein head coach, or the former Klein head coach, who tweeted, the coaches are already there. The facilities are already there. It really did not cost the UIL a ton of money to add water polo. Right. They, are, they already have a pool. And the swim coaches are usually the water polo coaches. And frankly, water polo is to swimming as to what track is to football. It's it's just like water polo seems to be like box lacrosse for swimming. Off-season <laughs> off training, right. right? To, to you know, work some different muscles that you wouldn't be working. And it just breaks up the monotony of just swimming in a straight line for 7,000 hours every day. So I don't think we should look at at the at what water polo did as an opportunity for lacrosse to step into UIL. I just call me crazy, call me cynical, but I just don't see 
the UIL wanting us at any point. A lot of people have also tweeted that they also don't want us because from the outside looking in, we're a mess. Yeah. Right? And, and we're, we all disagree with each other. We're all unorganized. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. A lot of messy parentals and coaching issues that go on. So, like I said, I just don't see UIL as clamoring. Didn't they have they cut sports in the last 10 years? Because wasn't wrestling downgraded from UIL to non-UIL? I, oh, I could be it? wrong, but... Yeah, I don't even know. I think they've actually dropped sports. So, well, I, would it would it help lacrosse? I'm not sure. I just think it's unrealistic to think that they'll add lacrosse. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciated that you were honest about not being sure because that's kind of where I land, right? And I've, I mean, I, I'm certainly no expert, right? But I've been bumping around Houston lacrosse now for, you know, ten or twelve years or whatever the heck it's been now, and on. I think it's, I'm in the same boat as you, right? It's more complicated, right? There's not a silver bullet. It's not going to fix everything. There's going to be trade-offs. Um, and I, 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 I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm confused about it too, right? I, I'm in the same boat as you. And I think the loudest people in the room that are for UIL have ulterior motives. And the people are the loudest people in the room that don't want UIL also have ulterior motives. Excuse me, motives. But that goes back to what you were saying about people being apathetic about even voting. There's a huge, the, the majority of Texas lacrosse coaches don't really care either way. Right. You know, the, the, the vocal minority is very opinionated. But, you know, they, the most, most of us, most of our peers just want to blow the whistle Damn. and get out and get out and run around. So, yeah, for sure. For sure. This is the this is the point in the discussion where I go, oh, holy shit, we've almost been at this two hours. Yeah, seems like <laughs> doesn't seem that long to be honest with you. It doesn't. I don't. I, I, man, I, I when I get done with these, I always I have this same experience every time. And the and the person I talk to do does to talk to does as well, which is, you know, when you sit and deliberately talk to one person for an hour or two with no interruptions, it's unbelievable how quickly the time flies by. I mean, it's yeah. just, just incredible, right? Well, I appreciate what you're doing for sure. I think, uh, you know, you're you're a pretty uh, humble guy in the fact that, you know, coaches that are always trying to learn are the ones that are humble and the ones that don't come off as know-it-alls. And even the fact that you're just doing this and creating a format and a platform to people just to talk is more important than flexing your, you know, articulate muscles about how smart you are and how you know everything. Just the fact that you're doing something. I think that's going, you know, once again, going back to apathetic coaches, you know, instead of telling people how they should do things, just give them an opportunity to talk or to do things or to talk or to experience things or to, you know, become more knowledgeable. If you look at a guy like Mike Daly, who's now the head coach at Brown, you know, I've read a couple articles about how he just fell into the tough coaching job and would just go sit in the front the front row of every speech at every convention and was self-taught that's so awesome. that's i think that's that's more of a uh a skill that i uh admire in people than just being a straight up know-it-all yeah, you know yeah. that's awesome i appreciate that yeah all right well do we do we miss anything anything else you not wanna... no? all right, 
your hands up and shout. Throw your head back and shout. Come on now, the bills are making it happen now. Stand up now, come on and shout. Yeah, 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 yeah. Say you will. Shout it right now, baby. Say you will. 